trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March, when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There have been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as a necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. The ABA Journal's Asked and Answered is doing a special series about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and my guest today is Vina Duval, a professor at the University of California Hastings College of Law. Her scholarship focuses on law and technology, including how digital technologies impact the lives of workers. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So how has uh, digital technology impacted your life at work (laughs) during the pandemic? Your classes started last week, right? That's right. And so I was on sabbatical last semester. I didn't have to teach online. This is my first time teaching online. It is exhausting. (laughs) It is not as amazing as being with my students in the same room, being able to see all of their faces at the same time, being able to sort of create a kind of a a certain type of classroom environment that's really only possible to do in person. But I am grateful that I nonetheless can teach in the middle of a pandemic and that I have a way to communicate with my students and a way for them to learn. Do you think it's hard to have work boundaries when it all shifts to online because it's perhaps easier to hop online and answer an email? You probably did that before, as I think many of us do. But I'm curious if you've kind of had to examine the line between home and work when you're working online. I mean, for me, it is very difficult to have um, boundaries in the context of this work from home scenario. I have three small children and they know that I'm in the house. So at any given moment, they are, you know, pouncing on me, wanting my attention. And what's hard is that essentially means that I'm working much longer hours because my time is constantly interrupted. And it means that whatever quality time that I used to have with my family is now also interspersed with work. And so it's been, all in all, it has been you know, an unwelcome shift for me. It's been much, much harder to keep work and home separate. As someone who does lots of different things at once already, I teach, I research, I write, I do legal analysis, you know, I do lots of different types of writing. As someone who's constantly doing many different things and trying to function in many different ways, having to also be a mom all the time and a partner all the time on top of that in the same moments has been extremely challenging. What has worked in terms of navigating that? Support. So I, unlike I think many people, I'm very, very lucky to have a really supportive partner who who also works, but who takes seriously his responsibilities as a parent. And so not all of it has, all, not all of the schoolwork, you know, the lunch making, the, the caretaking has fallen on my shoulders. We have done a good job of saying, okay, we're both working all day long, but I'm going to 
take the morning and respond to the kids as needed and you take the afternoon and respond to the kids as needed. And so that has been tremendously useful. Also going on walks when I just feel overwhelmed by the screen and by all all the various demands that are being made of me has just been a lifesaver. I think creating mental space outside of both work and family is incredibly important. And it's also increasingly hard because there's less time to do the things that we need to do. And so creating leisure time or downtime or time to just relax is, it takes a lot of effort. And do you have someone besides your partner to help with childcare where you have the three young children or you guys are just working it out amongst each other? We do have, we didn't for a long time um, and and became really impossible. So we now do have someone who's starting to work for us soon, who, you know, I think is going to be a real lifesaver, especially as, as school starts. I always say that people, for, for women, especially women in, you know, parents in general in, in the white collar world, our work is completely dependent on largely blue collar women who are who are doing the caretaking that we can't do. And that's certainly going to be the case in the in the coming weeks. But we haven't figured out for my elementary school age children how we're going to teach them. And I'm very sort of skeptical and worried about these sort of private pods that have been created. My kids go to public school and not everyone has the financial means to put their kids in a in a separate sort of private pod. And I, I don't know that I want to to do that either for for equity purposes. And so we're just going to see how things go as school starts. <laughs> you know, they're talking about that in Chicago, but I don't know of anyone who is actually doing it. I'm hoping for the best myself. I have two teenage boys. <laughs> Um, (laughs) the the good news is is my my husband and I are home working all day but we're both in industries that are very busy right now so the boys either do it or they don't but yeah it's it that's interesting if people are seriously so these pods are coming together in northern California it's there's a whole new business models that are are um, the temporary staffing agencies for teachers for these pods that are that are popping up and I'm more confident for my my third grader I think he'll be I think it'll be hard, but I think he'll be okay and he'll be pretty self-directed. But I have a five-year-old who really needs social interaction. And mm-hmm. um, and I sort of, we stepped back and we said, okay, well, what do we want for her this year? And for me, I just really want her to be able to learn to read and to be happy. And so I've started, you know, on top of everything else, working on reading with her for a good 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes to an hour a day. And, and I think if that works out and that happens, then it will be okay if, you know, if she doesn't otherwise learn a lot through through Zoom. Setting up our expectations and making them realistic, I think, is really important as we face the, the coming year. Yes. Now, let's shift topics for a bit. And I wanted to ask you, you experienced a Twitter attack during the pandemic, which was pretty intense. Can you uh, tell me about it? Yeah, and in some ways it's it's not an unrelated topic because uh. the impact of it was very much enhanced by the reality that I have three small children and that we're all stuck together and in house. But, you know, some of your listeners may know that 
the major gig companies are have been sponsoring a $110 million proposition in California to create a third category of work. And my research is on precarious work, and I've been doing an embedded ethnography of Uber and Lyft drivers in California over the last few years. And so, you know, they're they're not very happy about, about either my research or my sort of work to ensure that this proposition doesn't pass. And so early on in the pandemic, the second week of lockdown, actually, one of their supporters posted my family private home address on the internet. And um, and this was quite scary because we were in the middle of the pandemic and people are going crazy and people knew where we were. We were at home, sort of like sitting ducks. And, you know, a few weeks after that, I was, someone wrote, you know, a number of misinformed stories about me and my family on right-wing blogs. And following that, just a few weeks ago, my university got a massive Public Records Act request for all, all of my emails and text messages from these um, the PR firms that were hired by the gig companies, and then the Twitter account for the proposition actually abetted my online harassment, and and in some ways it backfired. I got a lot of really lovely support, and it drew attention to the problematics of the proposition itself. But I think it was it was harrowing, particularly because I am a public university researcher, and these are multi-billion dollar multinational corporations that want me to be silent. And so it was, you know, sort of bad corporate behavior. I'm hoping that it is coming to an end, but it was it was difficult and ugly. Well, do you think that in addition to the public relations firms that were hired to get the message out about you in a negative way, were some of these people on Twitter that they were you know, they were encouraged, but they were acting as individuals. And if so, do you think some of them were maybe gig workers? Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to tell, but I do think that, you know, so one of the messages that the PR firms have put out there is that I wrote this Assembly Bill 5 in California, which is not true. <laughs> but so I think that some of the freelancers who sort of were were responding to the harassment and sort of engaging in it are people who have who might be experiencing a lot of economic anxiety right now on top of pandemic anxiety and are sort of looking for someone to blame it on you know it's much easier to it's much easier to blame it on me than it is on, to, on an economic system or on you know the political system or on the corporations that hire them and fire them and so I think that you know I think that some of it had to do with that and I in general we see a lot of I think especially on social media, a lot of bad behavior erupting right now in this political climate, both, you know, the political climate of just where we are as a nation, as well as the pandemic with so much economic anxiety, so much unemployment and so much, you know, fears for people's lives and livelihoods. I think that uh, that certainly that some of that, what we saw, I saw, I experienced some of that on social media. During this, was it eye-opening for you to see how public relations groups can rely on individuals to take their message and carry it out in large numbers? 
Yes. So I was sort of doing research on these PR companies. And one of the things that one of them says on their website was, is that they are really good, um, particularly for, for propositions at framing an issue and appealing to the self-interest of third-party groups <laughs> um, mm. and, and that they turn coalitions into grassroots armies. And so I think that I was sort of, I, I guess, you know, as an academic, I live in this world of reason where I have debates about a topic and we use facts and perspectives to sort of debate the reality of the situation. And what I sort of have seen in this particular instance online is that so much of political debate in the country is not based in reason, but based in feelings. And they, the PR groups were really able to, are really able to, and, and purposefully so, to leverage those feelings, those anxieties, that anger to create what they call grassroots armies. So rather than, you know, being able to debate an issue on the merits, they harass and belittle and, and instill fear in people to silence them so that you can't really have a real debate. Well, what did you learn about responding to a debate that's based on feelings rather than logic? Is it best just to disengage? Yeah, so I refuse to disengage <laughs> because this is this is you know my research. It's what I care about. It's what I have spent the last decade of my life doing. But I talked to a number of digital security experts as well as people who have dealt with a lot of sort of alt right media attacks. And what they said to me was, you know, it's not worth engaging the people who are who are calling you names or or saying untrue things because that's that's what they want so they want to get a reaction out of you and if you just keep to keep to what you're doing to the facts to the merits of the debate and not respond to the the feelings then then you'll be you know then you'll be doing the right thing and so that's what I've tried to do just just continue to talk about what's going on and um, and my research and not really not really respond to the name calling and is it still going on or has it died down um, some of it is still going on. I generally just don't look on social media. I know that that stuff is still going on, but you know, I never know. And that's sort of, I think the point is to, is to instill a sense of uncertainty and fear so that I will, be, I will be silenced. And it's a te technique that these particular companies have used since, you know, the very beginning with journalists and, um, and even with some of their own employees. And so I, it's not surprising that it might continue at least through the election. When you say you don't look on social media, what do you mean? I mean, I'm thinking you must go on social media. Oh, right. I just don't look for the harassment. So, so there oh. are a fine there are a finite number of people who are who are so you engaging. don't read your DMs. I don't. Well, I just there. Or you have I, someone read them for you. Yeah, there's a, there there are there is like a group of about fifty people that they are using to do the harassment, and so I've just blocked those people. Ah. So my DMs are clean. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's uh, I don't I don't I know that you know others have told me that there's still a lot going on that they continue to sort of talk and say things and whatever, but I just I just don't look. I think it's um, it's not a useful use of my time. Do you think that maybe for people, and I'm thinking perhaps particularly for women, we maybe don't say as much on social media as men because we know that if we do, there's a good chance that we will be attacked? 
Yes, I think that is what part of what I've learned from this from this whole process is that this is a phenomenon that women on social media, especially women with with large followings, are regularly attacked. There's even a term for these people who, even if they don't outright attack you, just have to give you their two cents, no matter if you're the expert or what you say. Is um, they're termed reply guys, um, <laughs> and, and you know this is given in some ways it's created um, camaraderie. For with, uh, for me, I've talked to just so many other women um, from Sarah Lacey to Susan Fowler to just, I mean, to a lot other women who have dealt with this and the kinds of things that they've seen and received. And it's sort of like, you know, you hide, people be hide, hide behind the screen and all of their internalized misogyny and racism, things that they otherwise keep in check when they're interacting with people on an everyday level. And the anonymity of the internet allows them, allows it all to, all to come out with great fervor. And so, yes, I don't, I think that I am particularly, you know, every time I post something, I think, okay, well, how is this going to be received? What could possibly, how could this possibly be used against me? Um, what are the various ways in which I'm, I'm, you know, people are going to create memes out of this? <laughs> it's definitely an extra, extra layer of thinking that I go through that I, that I think that a lot of um, particularly probably men don't have to go through when they're, when they're just spewing their thoughts on the Twitter. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss what the pandemic has meant for the role technology plays in legal work. We'll be right back. As the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice, LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. LawPay understands unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect the IOLTA accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. Visit LawPay.com ABA to learn more. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to a special series of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, which looks at how lawyers are dealing with professional and personal changes brought by the coronavirus. Joining me today is Vina Dubal, a UC Hastings Law professor whose academic work focuses on law and technology, including how digital technologies impact the lives of workers. Professor, do you have a sense of what the pandemic could mean for how lawyers do work going forward? A lot of lawyers have been working remotely, even if they didn't want to. They didn't really have a choice. Yeah, I think two things. I think that the situation that we're currently in, the acute situation that we're in, is going to continue to be very hard for the reasons that we talked about before, that schools in many places are not in session or not in real life session. And so, so, so kids are working from home. And so people who are being forced to work from home are also having to sort of do this dual job of, of being a caretaker and being an attorney. Um, and that makes it hard. But I think in the future, what this will do for lawyers who are working in-house, lawyers who are working in firms, will make it much makes the case that it is possible and okay for people to work from home. You know, in Silicon Valley, there's there's this at-home work culture, but it does not exist across the valley, and it certainly doesn't exist across all all firms where people work and or all companies where lawyers work. And I think that 
what we're seeing right now is that the kinds of concerns that companies have had that people are, aren't productive at work or they're going to slack at work or there needs to be in-person FaceTime, that those are maybe lesser concerns than we thought. So in the future, I think even after the pandemic, if people need to work from home or they want to work from home, that there's going to be a little bit more flexibility with that. On the other hand, the flip side of that And this is true for all workers, but definitely true for lawyers. In fact, I am just watching my husband, who is an in-house attorney work, and he is on all the time in a way that almost seems extreme to me. You know, he is constantly doing Zooms and phone calls and talking to clients and the kinds of breaks that he used to get, you know, maybe even walking to someone's office or going to the to the cafeteria at his company and getting some food with a coworker, all of that is just sort of gone. And so watching him work, I mean, he is he is constantly on from when he turns on his um, his computer until until he you know shuts it at nighttime and it it seems to me to be slightly more strenuous um, with mm. fewer breaks with fewer sort of just moments where he can take a deep breath because he's you know he's almost literally being watched <laughs> all the time and I think mm-hmm. in in the blue collar workplace or even in in jobs where people have less power this is even more extreme because we know that these that a lot of companies are already using all kinds of surveillance technologies through people's computers to ensure their productivity at home and I don't see that as much with attorneys but the potential is always there and so you know it's a it's a two edged sword. On the one hand, you have the flexibility to work from home and not uh, not commute. On the other hand, you're on in a way that is perhaps more extreme and more exhausting than going to work and just being present. And do you think you mentioned that privacy concern? Do you think that companies maybe will try to erode in that area and they, you know, keep track of workers more? working from home. And there may not be a lot of pushback because it's not a great time to have to find a job. Yes, I think that's already happening. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I think the use of AI technology to do some of the surveillance is happening in ways that people are even unaware. And yeah, and what kind of pushback can you offer when you are desperate for the job, when you have record unemployment and, you know, just feel grateful to be working and, and getting paid. There you have very little bargaining power to push back against those things, especially when you don't even know that they're happening, which we see in some circumstances. And so my hope is that there will not be an increased normalization of this kind of surveillance on the job. But my, you know, my concern is that there that there's going to be. Do you have thoughts on how the profession is adapting to legal work that's hard to do remotely. Like I've heard about court appearances are difficult, especially in the criminal defense arena, or teaching a law school class has been hard for some people. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to the to the teaching the law school class, and I can tell you that this is not going to be a, a, a possible to do for longer than this very short period of time in which we have to do it for the pandemic. On the one hand, this is good news. It means we're not all going to, to move to online classes. But in the immediate sense, it's been really a struggle. My students get more from me than just information about the law. We form community in class. 
class. I mentor them. We talk about their lives and their struggles and their futures. I, you know, we have coffee with other people who might serve as mentors, attorneys in the field, policymakers in the field, judges in the field, and none of this is possible. And so it's it's a struggle. Um, it's a struggle to teach because, again, my teaching law students is not just relaying information. It's much more than that. And the kinds of um, relational aspects of all of our work are are impossible under these circumstances, especially when we're, you know, with law students, we're dealing with, with students we've never had before who we don't have already have relationships with makes it quite difficult to form over Zoom, um, quite time consuming and, and emotionally exhausting to form other Zoom, over Zoom. And I think that, you know, especially for, for um, people, criminal defense attorneys, for example, who are, who are maybe trying to appear remotely or, or not, I can't imagine, you know, it's, you're facing the same things. I mean, some of these attorneys are not going to be able to Zoom with, with their clients who are in prison or jail, certainly, and um, which means that they are going to have to go physically to visit them, which places them in a precarious situation with regard to their health, which in turn makes the communities that they live in sort of unsafe and and potentially, you know, exposed in a way that they wouldn't be exposed before. And so, yes, I think that there are many, many problems that many of us are facing in this profession that are not going to be solved by digital technologies. Now, you are in Northern California, and besides the pandemic, you guys are experiencing some terrible fires right now. How is that? I mean, is that impacting the technology you use, do you think, or will it? Is it? I mean, what's going to happen if you guys can't use Zoom to, to teach class because you had to evacuate? I got this really surreal email from a student last week who said, Dear Professor Dubal, I'm very sorry. I might not be able to attend class today. My family and I are evacuating. We might be settled into place by the time class starts into to our you know makeshift um, home, but we're not sure. Um, but I just wanted you to know. And what was surreal and upsetting to me about it was that this student was evacuating. And what she wanted me to know was not that her home, her family, home was about to burn down and that her life was in danger, but that, you know, don't worry, I'll set up right in time for class and I'll be there. And so this, I just, it like broke my heart to receive. And I, um, and what was, you know, extremely upsetting to me is that I think many of us, myself included, are often putting our work before our our health and our, our our safety right now in this pandemic. And it's it seems like the natural thing to do. It's what we've been sort of trained to do our whole lives to put our work selves first. And it's just it's 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 literally not not safe to do that right now. It's very important to protect our health to protect our families, um, to protect our homes. And I wish we lived in a a cultural context where that was not just acceptable, but exalted, where that was the right thing to do. And that's the message that I've been trying to send to my students over the last, you know, just week of teaching is that you are going to have some very difficult things happen this semester. You might have a family member that gets the coronavirus, you might have to evacuate, you might lose your home. And those things matter more than this class. We are just going to have to to learn that lesson as as we go on together. And we're here not just to learn, but to support one another and to care for one another. And 
And I really, really hope that there are more place, spaces, more workplaces, more law firms, more more corporations, more, more nonprofits that understand that this situation that we are all in, whether you're in the Northern California fires or the hurricanes in the Gulf Coast or wherever you are in an outbreak in Oregon, that we really have to care for each other. And that matters more than productivity right now. What do you miss the most about life before the pandemic? Um, from a work perspective, I really miss being around my students. I really miss them coming to office hours. I miss forming relationships with them. From a work perspective, I also just really, really miss going to talks and engaging in, you know, vibrant debates at conferences. But from a family perspective, I miss being around my elderly parents. I miss watching them throw my kids up in the air. I miss, you know, spending leisurely time with them without worrying about their health and that we're somehow infecting them with this virus. I think those are the things that I miss most. Has this time maybe shed a light on something in your life that wasn't working that you're going to change? I think I work way too hard and I'm really, really excited once this all you know, t- goes tides over and my kids are back in school. And I realize school is really the scaffolding that, that it allows me to do my to do my work, to have a career. I think I, I want to work less and I think I want to encourage other people to work less. Um, life is so, so short. Health is so important and it's not necessary or desirable to go through life feeling anxious about productivity in the way that I have for most of my, uh, most of my career. And I'd really like for that to change. And you are a tenured professor, right? I am a tenured professor. And so I have the the ability to do that. You know, it's certainly (laughs) not a perfect person. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly not. It's certainly not a privilege that other people have. However, what I try and convey to my students, especially my employment law students, is when you go in-house, when you are, you know, a powerful person at these corporations, when you are writing the policies for firms um, as a partner at at a law firm, you can change the work culture of the places that you live in. And it is more than just law and policy that changes people's lives. It's also um, making affirmative decisions to be different and to act different and to value things differently. And so hopefully my sort of walking the walk in this arena uh, has some, will have some influence on, on shifting work cultures more broadly. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.